0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, join me once again if you would. We'll get back here to, uh, let's do John 18. We're going to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for this episode. His first appearance before Pilate is episode 31. 31. And then he will stand before Herod in episode 32, and that's uh, an event that's only found in the Gospel of Luke. And then he will return back to Pilate for episode 33. We'll start with John 18. We worked our way through all four of these accounts uh, a couple weeks ago, but it's been two weeks since the Schaefer Conference uh, last week meant we missed a class. And we'll have to uh, take some time to pick it up again and fix our bearings. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are humble under the authority of the Word of God, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your Word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And once again, Father, on this day we have an opportunity to assemble together and receive instruction Father, we have the opportunity to observe from the example of our Savior and how he humbled himself in obedience to your plan, even uh, through these trials, even through the physical abuse, the uh, crucifixion on the cross, Father. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we might not only appreciate what we can glean um, from his perspective, but also to observe from our perspective, Father, what is expected of us in obedience to your plan as well. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. John chapter 18. Picking up here in um, verse 28. They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so they would not be defiled, but might eat. Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Obviously he's guilty, that's why we're here. <laughs> so Pilate said to them, Well, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to to die. Remember, he had actually spoken that he would be crucified, not just put to death, but crucified. That means that it will not be at the hands of the Sanhedrin. It will not be a mob action. It will not be a, a self-righteous stoning, as it were. It will be, by crucifixion, the Roman method of execution. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me and so this is the gospel account where we actually have more of the detail into what their accusations were uh, what Pilate actually learned in the process from them and their accusations that he would then take to jesus we have more of the conversation between Pilate and jesus that's found here in john uh contrasted with uh matthew and mark certainly and even with luke now luke has more detail than matthew and mark but not as much as uh as we have here in john all right, are you king of the Jews? Are you king of the Jews? And this comes about because of the accusations that are leveled in the Gospel of Luke. Um, again, Jesus answered in verse 34, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? <laughs> All right, what have you done? And we see through Pilate's investigation here, he's not so much concerned about the guilt or innocence. He's convinced that, that Jesus is an innocent man and that he's engendered the hatred against the, uh, the religious leaders. Uh, but what he's investigating here is then now how does that affect him? How does that affect Rome? Uh, if the Jewish people are up in arms and, and uh, unruly, then that's going to be something he's going to have to possibly deal with. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is not of this realm. And we're going to have to deal with this because this verse, gets ignored by far too many people and it gets um, abused by others. (laughs) The ones who don't ignore it, abuse it. And we end up with uh, this verse kind of finding its way into a tug of war between covenant people attacking dispensational theology or dispensational people that are basically ignoring it or other applications that, uh, that approach this verse. Um, it's problematic for some folks that, that, want, to try, that want to deny that, um, that the, the Davidic throne is an earthly kingdom. They want to claim that Jesus is seated on the Davidic throne right now at the right hand of God the Father. And they will use this verse to support their claim. That, see, the Davidic throne is not an earthly throne. Look what he says here. My kingdom is not of this world. All right. And yet, apart from this verse, what do we have Dozens of other places, hundreds of other places even, whereby we know the Davidic throne is of this earth. That the, uh, the promised uh, future for Israel is of this earth. It does have land-grant boundaries on this earth. It, it, the, the Jewish nation will relate to other uh, Gentile nations on this earth. So what is he talking about when he says my kingdom is not of this realm? Is he talking about the Davidic throne? Is he talking about the kingdom of Israel? At that point, no. At that point, he's talking about something entirely different. And we've got we to gotta identify that, okay, um, as it were. Because he is king as son of David, of course. He right, has the right to be king, but he also is the son of man. He's also the son of God. He has sovereign authority in a number of different applications. And we need to uh, make sure that we're not confusing them as we work our way through. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll have more on that, I think, uh, moving forward. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you're a king. <laughs> All right? That's the only word he heard in that whole process was my kingdom. Okay? And uh, not of this world, not of this realm. None of that really bothered Pilate any. He heard the word kingdom, and he goes, Okay, so you're a king, right? <laughs> you say it correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And uh, again, it's going to come down to the domain of darkness versus the domain of light. It's going to come down to the work that he's accomplishing in, in human redemption to be our substitute, to be our redeemer. And that by faith in Christ, we can be transferred out of that domain of darkness, delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. All right. And that's the kingdom that's not of this cosmos. That's the kingdom that's not of this realm. That's the kingdom that's not from here. And that is entirely A different animal than what we're talking about when we're talking about the throne of David and the, the, uh, the reign of Israel on the millennial earth. All right? To me, it's not that complicated, but there it is. All right. First point of study. Pilate opened his court for the morning with a question for the religious leaders. He opens with a question for the religious leaders. And the question is basically, why are you here? What accusation do you bring against this man? What accusation do you bring against this man? And there has to be something specific. It's fundamental. It's fundamental to Roman law. Fundamental to any standard of fairness. You can't just say, "Well, he's a bad person." Well, he's wicked. All right. Well, all right. We all are. What has he done? <laughs> okay. What law has he violated? And uh, one of the some of the abuses, in fact, that our founding fathers re- railed against was the idea of being held without charge. Um, that's that's fundamental to to law to fairness to justice and equity, that if we are held, if we are deprived of our liberty and our freedom, if we are in custody uh, of a a judicial uh, body of some sort or of an executive body of some sort, well, then we have the right to stand before a judicial body and find out why we, uh, we are jailed, why it is that we are deprived of our liberty and what is the charge, for example. And uh, what accusation do you bring against him? And, well, they don't really have anything specific, not in this account. Now, let's turn back to Luke, Luke 23, and we'll start to see some of the things they come up with when the, uh, well, he's an evildoer. Uh, when that was not sufficient. In uh, Luke 23, Luke <coughs> 23, The whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, now we have specific charges. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. (coughs) All right. So Pilate asked him, saying, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. So now we find some... Specific charges and some specific details that are not included in John's records. So we ask ourselves: both both accounts are true. Luke's account is true. John's account is true. Uh, which order makes sense? That maybe they came in this order first. That that order, you know, this item first, that item second, as it were. I think that the John it makes more sense in my thinking, anyway. That the John account precedes the Luke account as far as what accusations do you bring against this man? And they said well, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't be here. And then uh, finding that insufficient, uh, they then had to move on to say, well, uh, we found this man misleading our nation. Is there any law on the Roman books that says lying to the Jews is a crime? (laughs) Okay, probably not under Roman law. Uh, I suspect there's nothing in the 12 uh, tables or anything in in Roman law, any statute or anything in... uh, uh, that would be viewed as a violation. Uh, so they don't stop with that. We found this man misleading our nation. And forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Ah, now we're getting into something that would be a violation of Roman law. Failing to pay taxes to Caesar. Okay? And yet, on a practical basis, um, the Romans weren't as concerned about individual tax protesters because they had hired agents. They had uh, representatives, tax collectors, to go and do that for them. And uh, they didn't care much about how it was done or the means achieved and any of the rest. They just said, look, we want, you know, we're going to collect $200 million this year. Get it done. And then the tax collectors would roam around and, and uh, figure out how they were going to raise the funds. And usually they raised more so they could skim what they were going to skim. And, uh, and how they did it was not their concern. They would then hire sub-agents. They would subcontract. Uh, in individual localities and and so forth, except for Matthew. Matthew was so cheap, he didn't subcontract. He sat in his own tax collecting booth, which uh, is an indicator that he didn't want to minimize his profits by paying the the subcontractors that he would be obligated to, so he did it himself, which most of the the, uh, tax collectors didn't want to do. They didn't want to be publicly seen as having those, uh, those contracts with Rome. In any event, so uh, misleading our nation, no big deal, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar starts to be a concern. But with tax agents in place, it's not quite as big a deal. But saying that he himself is Christ, a king. OK, now, wait a minute. This could be a big deal if, in fact, it, it sparks an insurrection against Rome. All right. There, were, there had been a number of so-called Christ that had come and led insurrections, and many of them had been put down violently. Uh, Barabbas himself was an insurrectionist. He's presently in prison for that. And um, if this is another one that has broad support, uh, then it's something that Pilate would be very concerned about, which is why when he goes into the praetorium and starts to question Jesus, the one question that he has is, are you a king? Are you a king? And that's pretty con- uh, consistent throughout the different gospel accounts. Um, so, are you king of the Jews? He answered him, and said, "It is as you say." And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, "I find no guilt in this man. He's he's um, pronounced innocent on three separate occasions through these two trials of, of uh, or these trials of uh, Pilate and uh, and Herod." Uh, last week or two weeks ago. We uh, took the time under sub-point A to give you some detail on Pontius Pilate, ruled as governor from 26 to 36 A.D. Good article in the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. There are other resources available if you want background on Pontius Pilate. Uh, Grace Notes has a good article related to Pontius Pilate that you can uh, take advantage of. The religious leaders remained fastidiously observant of their traditions, insisting on ritual purity even while achieving an unrighteous murder. They were unwilling to enter into the praetorium. They did not want to cross into the Gentile territory, the, the, um, you know, the banners of the Caesars and the idolatry that would be in there. Um, they didn't want to leave themselves ritually impure for Passover observance. John eighteen twenty eight. It's remarkable how religious legalists can be so... Um, fixated on their own uh, self-righteousness. They can be fixated on their own externals, even while on a practical basis they are as, as dark as, as night in their soul. But it's, it's critical for them to maintain the outward appearance, it's critical that, uh, that they, they maintain the illusion of, of these things. And it's why uh, you know, they, they insisted on having that final trial after sunup so they can get their guilty verdict uh, in a prescribed fashion. And then they can go to Pilate. Why did not they take them to Pilate before midnight, or before the sun came up? They had to wait for the sun to come up. They had to wait for the full Sanhedrin to be assembled. They had to have a legal trial for their kangaroo court. Okay, as long as it satisfied the, the uh, external requirements, they were good in their uh, contrived murder. And I would say that today, we don't have the ceremonial clean versus unclean uh, aspects today. To worry about, but the uh, the uh, the principle is still there. That when we are uh, worshiping with our lips, but our, but not with our heart, when we have the external uh, the the show that has no reality behind it, then, then we're just as much hypocritical as they were, and uh, and we come under our own discipline as well. I think more so. I think far more so, because specifically because the church age is not designed to have the emphasis on the externals and on the ritual and, and so forth. The, the church age is entirely about the heart reality in our worship in spirit and in truth. All right? So our uh, accountability is much more uh, significant. All right, their only accusation then was that Jesus was an evildoer. Their only accusation was that Jesus was an evildoer. And our point C... their only accusation was that Jesus was an evildoer. And I think this precedes then the specifics that come in the um, Gospel of Luke. When that uh, was not sufficient, they began to accuse Jesus of of insurrection and self-proclaimed kingship. When that was not sufficient, they began to accuse Jesus of insurrection and self-proclaimed kingship. They had some other things as well that were rather ridiculous. Um, and the, the tax evasion accusation was actually patently false. This was an attempt they had made earlier. The tax evasion accusation was patently false. And we can turn back to Luke chapter 20 and see this. This was an attempt they had made earlier. They would have filed this charge a long time ago if they had the chance. They tried to trap him about, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar in Luke chapter 20. The um, scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Spoke this parable against them. Well, obviously, he's misleading the nation. (laughs) Why is he misleading the nation? Because he's preaching about us. (laughs) Can't you just see the, the. I find it hilarious. You know, this is, the, this is the Sanhedrin's accusation. Well, he's misleading the nation. Well, what's he misleading the nation about? Well, much of his teaching was about them. Yeah. Okay? And well, he's a liar. He's misleading the nation. And don't you find it remarkable? Well, how many liars have you ever noticed that accuse others of lying? Because that's, that's, that's the world they live in. That's their whole life is wrapped up in the, in the, the lying of the adversary. And, and so they just assume everybody else is lying like they are. And so, uh, you know, he's he's teaching this here parable of the vine growers in uh, in, in Luke chapter 20 and talking about the the stone that became the cornerstone, the stone which the builders rejected. And um, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. Judgment is coming and it's going to hit them. They're the builders. They've rejected this, this cornerstone. So the scribes and chief priests tried to lay hands on him this very... I'm reading from Luke 20, verse 19, by the way, if I've lost you at this point. And they feared the people, for they, the people, understood that he, Jesus, spoke this parable against them, against the scribes and the chief priests. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. you think Satan ever does this? Does he send visitors into churches? All right. That's why we're always very suspicious of our visitors that come in here. No, I'm teasing. We, we, we love our visitors that come in here. We absolutely love our visitors that come in here. <laughs> but now notice. If, uh, if we do start to observe by their fruit, it doesn't, you know, how long do they stick around? If they're not truly regenerative, if they're not truly hungry after the word, it doesn't take long and they, they usually some trigger hits them and they get mad and furious and storm out of here and start posting videos and stuff. Um, <laughs> in order to catch him in some statement so that he they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. all right? you want to catch me in something I say? fine, because everything I say is on the on the internet anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm unafraid, whatever, okay. Did I say something? Well, pull it up, let's look at it. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. he just yeah, they're just are they just sucking up to him, right? And just, just flattering him and, and all of that. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is what they're trying to trick him into, okay? And there are factions within Israel, to be fair, there are factions that, that um, hated the tribute that they were paying. You had your, your uh, uh, zealots, for example, that, uh, that hated that, and other groups um, that did what they could to try to minimize that. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and description does it have? And just the, the brilliance of, of his answer here, I love it. They just shut him up. They say, well, whose picture's on that coin? (laughs) Okay. So render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So he never is on record as saying, don't pay your taxes. You know, that's earthly money, and it's a stamp of his image. So it belongs to him. There were other occasions where he sent Peter fishing to pull a fish out, and inside the fish was a coin that was good for, uh, for two. It was uh, good for him and Peter to, to go pay their taxes. So the tax evasion accusation was patently false. Now, under law, here's all these fastidious law keepers, right? Under law, if you bring a false accusation, what are you worthy of? <laughs> You're worthy of death. They're bringing false accusations. And the judge in this case doesn't find any basis, any grounds to the charges. So, who is it that should be killed at this point? Now, ultimately what it comes down to under point D, maintaining their temporal power, maintaining their temporal power required maintaining Rome's ultimate sovereignty. Maintaining their temporal power required the maintaining of Rome's ultimate sovereignty. It's remarkable. They hated it, but they needed it. (laughs) They hated Rome's dominion over them, but they needed it. And even though the Christ was with them, they viewed it as a threat. Not something to look forward to. (laughs) It'd be like somebody today hating the idea of the rapture. Because at the rapture of the church then, my time here is over. Now, I don't have a problem with that, but people do. There are believers who do. Why? Because they're worldly. They're living in this world. They're living for this world. They're having fun. And they don't want it to stop, because right here, right now, I, I I have it pretty well, I have it pretty good. I got some money, I got I got stuff, I got toys, I got my, I got the, I'm living the good life. And I also happen to know that I'm a spiritual wreck. I happen to know I have not laid up but chump change in heaven, if that. And that if the trumpet sounds today, <laughs> I'm going to be low in the in the uh in the in the uh, blessing at the judgment seat. I don't have much there. I have more here than I expect I'm gonna have there. You see what I'm saying? Somebody might voice that, and maybe they won't voice it out loud, but they're certainly thinking that. They don't want to go to heaven. Not now. Someday, yes, of course, they don't want to go to hell when they die, but they do want to go to heaven when they die. And so someday, but not today, not too soon, because we're too busy having fun right now. And I know I haven't laid up much treasure right now. And, you know, I kind of figured I'd I'd have my fun now. And then, you know, later, when I'm older, when, you know, (laughs) when my body's paying the price for all the carnality and fun I'm having now, then, okay, then I'll try to get, you know, holy and make up for lost time. I'll, I'll be a good person. I'll do good things. And all of this is just a, a tragic, um, it's a lie. They've bought into Satan's plan and program. They've bought into Satan's system. As if somehow being a good Christian meant doing good things, being a good person, making God happy. And, and you know, denying some of these other fun fun things that you're doing now. That's not the Christian way of life. Never has been. Never will be. The one kid that, that uh, in my unit in Desert Storm that died, um, we lost one soldier out of 130 that went to Desert Storm. And the one that died, I remember we were sitting in the barracks before we shipped over. There were five of us. And they had told us, we, they said, we have an estimated 20% casualty rate that we're going we're gonna to face going over. And so five of us sat in the room and looked at each other and said, "Right, one of us isn't coming, coming back. <laughs> and it was true. One of us didn't come back. And um, his, his whole attitude was, we talked about the gospel, talked about eternal life, and he didn't want any part of it. He said that was something he'd worry about when he got older. He said, all, his words I'll get religious when I'm older. He says, right now, I just want to have fun. And he was 18, 19, I think, handsome, you know, good-looking guy, girls would just jump into bed with him i mean just it was just the kind of thing that you just think wow you know you'll get religious when you're older because he figured i got it made life's great and well he died on my birthday in 1991 and um that's the way it is but how many others have that attitude okay ironside preached that um he was preaching on a Sunday in a church, H.A. inside, and, and got them, you know, how many you know want to go to heaven? Everyone was raising their hand. And how many want to go to heaven right now? <laughs> Have you heard this story? All the hands came down in the church. All the hands came down except one. There was a little old lady in the back in a wheelchair, and a little decrepit old lady raised her hand. She was ready to go, but she was the only one in the whole place. Maintaining their temporal power required maintaining Rome's ultimate Sovereignty. And what we see here, you'll notice John 18, and they insisted, they're not going to judge him themselves. They're not going to judge him themselves because they want him dead. 31 to 32 here. Um, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. They say, we got a conflict. Yes, we could judge them according to our law, but our law is under restraints presently uh, because we've been subjected to your law, to the Roman law. And the Roman law has come in now and put restrictions on our law, saying no executions. Any capital offenses have to go before a Roman court, not a, not a Jewish court. And so it was a realm of uh, jurisdiction that had been removed from the the uh, Jewish court system during the time of Rome's sovereignty. And it's, it's interesting the attitude here, the purpose clause <coughs> in verse 32 is God's purpose to fulfill the word of Jesus which He spoke. That's God's purpose for why they're saying what they're saying. It's not their purpose. It's not their purpose. They're not saying what they're saying in order to fulfill Jesus' prophecy. <laughs> right? This is what we were looking at in, in, uh, uh, the other day when we were talking about different purposes for the thorn in the flesh. God's purpose was to humble Paul. Satan's purpose was to torment him. And there's different purposes at work. Anytime you're engaged in the angelic conflict, there's going to be different purposes at work. We talked about Satan's purpose in afflicting Job. It was different than God's purpose in allowing Satan to afflict Job, right? And so the the religious leaders here, they have a purpose for propping up the Roman system. They have a purpose for following the Roman procedures and not violating the Roman procedures. But so too does God. And God's purpose is to fulfill the prophecies that were uttered by Christ. So, what's their purpose? Why is it that they uh, insist on doing this? If I drop dead here, I hope Dan will just come up and keep the class going. If I drop over here, just keep the class going, all right? I have plenty to drink. I don't know what it is. Alright, so what's their purpose? I think we get a clue as to their purpose. Um, In the next chapter, we get a clue to their purpose actually back in chapter 11. Let's look at some of these things. In chapter 19, we we see that they continue to support the Roman system. John 19. Um, This is in the second part now of Pilate's trial. Episode 33. So we'll deal with this coming up. But... Um, Pilate in verse uh, 10 says to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Permissive will of God. Permissive will of God. This whole thing is happening uh, according to man's design, but according to God's design, ultimately, he's giving permission. He has sovereign control over everything that happens here. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, verse 12, Pilate made efforts to release him. And the Jewish leaders won't let it happen. They're going to insist on maintaining the Roman sovereignty over the Jewish sovereignty in the, in the, in the courts. It'd be like as if uh, um, the Supreme Court of our country decided, you know what, we're not going to rule on this. And they put it back down to a state court. And then the state court saying, no, we insist, it has to be up at this level, uh, and uh, we, we, re, we refuse to take the case back in our jurisdiction. You have to handle it in your jurisdiction. And so Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And you see what they're doing here. Not only are they threatening Pilate, and they're doing a good job of it, but they themselves are declaring their own allegiance. They are allegi- They are uh, pledging their allegiance to Caesar, and they're rejecting their Christ. We have no king but Caesar. Which is what's going to happen here. <coughs> Verse 15. You know, he puts this. Uh, he comes out here and he says, "Behold, your king." And they cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That's amazing. You know, you, have, uh, you spend 2,000 years waiting for your Messiah to be revealed. And then your Messiah is revealed and you hate Him. You hate Him. And so... You want him dead. And you want to continue in the mythology, in the lie that, oh, we're still waiting for our Christ to come. And you have to perpetuate that lie because you know full well your Christ came and you rejected him. So, back up a little bit now. Let's go back to uh, John 11. and I don't remember how long ago it was we were in this episode. It must have been some time back. Um, John 11, after the uh, resurrection, the resuscitation of Lazarus to physical life, the restoration of Lazarus to mortality. Um, You know, it's interesting. This is really they had other plans prior to this to stop him now from this point forward the only way they know they can stop him is that he has to die and theoretically he has to die and stay dead <laughs> because and only does he have to die and stay dead but now Lazarus has to die again and stay dead um, there were just so much many that are that are coming to to faith because they uh, they they came to Mary in verse 45, and they saw what he had done. They believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done in terms of restoring Lazarus to physical life. And they say, this has to stop. This has to stop now. And therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees are now in complete agreement on this. Be like Republicans and Democrats just uniting to say, you know, we normally hate each other. We never agree on anything except we agree on this. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Like that's a problem. Okay. They view that as a problem. They view that as unacceptable. And even worse, what's the next phrase? The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And that's the order they put it in. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. It's like <laughs> the Romans are going to remove the Sanhedrin. Right now, the Romans allow the Sanhedrin to rule. But if, this, if, if we don't stop this, the Romans are going to come. They're going to dissolve the Sanhedrin. Oh, yeah, and they'll also destroy the nation. That's bad, too. <laughs> but worse than that, we lose our place. We lose our place. So maintaining their temporal power required the maintaining of Rome's ultimate sovereignty. That's a price they got to pay. They don't like it, but what are you going to do? It's like we were talking this morning in Dan's training. We were talking about the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4 or Luke 4. And the offer of the kingdoms. The kingdoms in this world, if you bow down and worship me. That's a small price to pay, isn't it? And you can have the authority and the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. What do you got to pay to get that? These Pharisees paid that price. They were happy to pay that price. They worshiped Satan in order to keep their place. Their kingdom and their glory. Their authority and their glory. And it was not from God. It was from the adversary. We better ask ourselves this. What are we willing to compromise to keep our place? Are we content with this cosmos? Or uh, do we rejoice? Do we read, hey, if we let Him go on like this, all men will believe in Him. That ought to be a good thing. The trumpet could sound today. We could be face-to-face with Jesus Christ today. That ought to be a good thing. But sadly, what First John 2.28 tells us is that there are many who will shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Church-age believers... When the trumpet sounds, I wonder sometimes with, what that shout is in First Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. I do think it's his shout, but nevertheless, I think there will also be another shout coming from many in the bride that aren't ready. And, oh, you ever been caught like that? Oh, was that today? Oh, okay. I'm supposed to offer the opening prayer and they're going to throw out the first pitch of the baseball season here. And it's, uh, I haven't missed it yet, but I'm terrified I'm going to. Saturday the 23rd, so you ladies will be out there in your retreat. And um, I'm supposed to be over there on the ball. I've done this for, I don't know how many years in a row now, a dozen, more, 15 years in a row now, uh, since Bob played t-ball. That's thats a long time ago. and. When was he five years old? That was a long time ago. And uh, and and I'm I'm just terrified. Oh, was that today? Okay, no. Okay, all right. But that's the that's the attitude I think that folks are going to have when the trumpet sounds. Oh, is that today? I'm not ready. Well, whether you're ready or not, it's happening. It's happening. All right. Jesus had prophesied, this is at point E, Jesus had prophesied of his crucifixion and the religious leaders were now locked into a course of action which will fulfill his promise. Jesus had prophesied of his crucifixion, Matthew 20, verse 19, and the religious leaders were now locked into a course of action which will fulfill his promise. Just like with the returning of the pieces of silver, <laughs> whatever Judas' motivations were and his regrets and his metamelami and all of his reasons that he had to throw the silver into the, into the temple. and whatever the reasons were they had to buy the potter's field, God was fulfilling prophecy. And that's an awesome testimony to how his sovereignty has no problem being reconciled with our volition. We have problems sometimes trying to reconcile human volition with divine sovereignty. But God has no problems with that. He's got total control. And he doesn't have to turn us into mindless puppets to do it. He has total control in absolute sovereignty, even while we in our volition do all kinds of terrible things. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 19. And I I love the specificity on this. Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify, and on the third day he will be raised up. How specific can you get? (laughs) This is what we've seen. The trials before Annas and Caius, taking him over to Pilate, scourged, crucified. Raised on the third day. The specificity of biblical prophecy is unlike anything else this world has ever seen. They have their their phonies, their frauds, their counterfeits. You get all this bizarre focus on Nostradamus or all these other morons, uh, demoniacs out there. And these prophecies aren't even prophecies. They're just these vague ramblings and predictions that are so generic you know, you could you could find fulfillments in them, you know, practically any which way. Say, so, "Ooh, Nostradamus said that." No, he didn't. This is what he said, and you just you have to kind of look into it, and it could be anything. They're so vague and so nondescript. Not like this. This is specific. This is precise. Daniel uh, pegged the 69th week to the very day. That's, that's that's unbelievable. Only God could have done such a thing. Religious leaders were now locked on a course of action which would fulfill his promise. These things they said in order to, not their purpose, but God's purpose. God's purpose to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. God's purposes are achieved. We can appreciate that. All right. The trial opens, point two then. Pilate opened Jesus' trial with an inquiry into Jesus' kingship. With an inquiry as to Jesus' kingship. A couple of things. And we've, got, we've got some good time left. Let's, let's deal with this. Every gospel is in agreement. Every gospel account. Matthew has the statement. Are you a king? Mark, are you a king? Luke, are you a king? Uh, John, same thing. Okay. Okay. Every gospel record, the inquiry is into Jesus' kingship. And that's significant, all right? And Jesus affirms his kingship. There were various things in which he stayed absolutely silent, but on this he could not stay silent. Jesus affirmed his kingship, every record. yet he refused to answer the accusations against him. All right? And part of this, of course, we understand, is the, uh, the imagery of the silent sheep. The prophecy in Isaiah 53, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth so that he did not complain. And that's true in a number of applications. He doesn't say one peep before Herod when we get to Herod's trial. He won't even say a peep to Herod. He does to Pilate when Pilate is investigating his kingship. And I find that to be significant. It is, uh, of course, the nature of things is that uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, Rome is the empire that will be supplanted by Jesus Christ. And so he acknowledges his kingship. Yet he refused to answer any accusation against him. Part of that discernment in terms of knowing when to answer and when not to answer. Those back-to-back verses in Proverbs where you don't answer and then you do. All right, and the, the the key to unlocking that, of course, in an application of wisdom, is knowing which time is which, <laughs> right? Say, Father, is this the time I'm supposed to keep my mouth shut, or is this the time I'm supposed to, uh, supposed to speak? Because there is a time, a time for each one. And uh, he has to be the silent lamb in fulfillment of those prophecies, but he also has to testify the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. All right? to testify the good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. This is significant. This has application for you and I. This very event has application for you and I. Paul uh, encouraged uh, Timothy in this regard, that Timothy has to fulfill his good confession. When he stood in the presence of fellow elders and Paul laid on hands and he was identified as a pastor teacher, when he submitted to the training as a pastor teacher, you're making a good confession. Okay, Think about what you're doing when you're standing before all the world and you're undertaking the ritual of water baptism. You're declaring to, uh, to all the cosmos, men and angels alike, that you no longer are in that domain of darkness. You now have been transferred in the kingdom of His beloved Son. You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ has risen, we now walk in the newness of life. And it's a, it's a bold declaration. It's a testimony. It's a witness. It's a defiance. You're putting a bull's on your back and saying, bring it on. <laughs> okay? Because I am, I'm drafted into the angelic conflict. I'm a, I'm a soldier of Jesus Christ. I have a priestly function, an ambassadorial function, uh, a, a soldier function. We all get to do that. And then when you step up as a deacon or you step up as a pastor, it's m- ramped up even more you get a bigger bullseye. Okay? No one, after putting his hand to the plow and then looking back, is worthy of the kingdom of God. When you have hands laid on you in an ordination, there is a stricter judgment. There is accountability. So, um, Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jesus makes the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And he does so as the prototype, as the pattern for the coming church age he's the apostle and high priest of our confession okay this is why homilageo is such a beautiful study not just getting back into fellowship in a first john 1 9 application we got lots of homilageo to do and it's uh uh, the first john 1 9 is, is only part of it much more significant applications to be made there so jesus affirmed his kingship no denials No denials. When someone says, are you a Christian, what are you going to say? Well, what if they're going to throw Christians in jail and they say, are you a Christian? What are you going to say? Okay, identifying with those who are so mistreated. All right. And yet refusing to answer. We see that in Matthew 27. Are we familiar with this? Let's look at these. Let's grab um, Matthew 27. We haven't been in Matthew yet today. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. (coughs) in verse 11 Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying are you king of the Jews and Jesus said to him as you say as you say so he answers he makes the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate and Hamalagao Pilate said it he agreed as you say I am king king of the Jews and while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders he did not answer so he gives the homilageo agreement with what Pilate had to say. Pilate was making a true statement. But then these chief priests and elders, they're lying through their forked tongue, right? This brood of vipers and their, their filthy accusations and slander. None of that was true. Why would he say anything there? There's no homilageo there. You can't say the same thing as in agreement with any of that filth. He stays silent. He stays silent. And so Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? He did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite, uh, quite amazed. You ever consider how sometimes your silence speaks volumes? You women better understand that because you're commanded to do that in 1 Peter 3. Without a word, it's your behavior that communicates. And then, you know, us knucklehead husbands finally catch on. Oh, so Pilate had a chance to learn through what he said, and Pilate had a chance to learn through what he didn't say. In both applications, the um, Mark record is very similar. Mark 15:2 uh, and then Mark 15 verses 3 through 5, very similar to what we just saw in Matthew. Pilate questioned him, "Are you king of the Jews?" And he answered, "As you say." Homologeo, in agreement. You said it. I agree. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly, and Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges there are against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Okay. He affirmed his kingship, yet he refused to answer any accusation against him. Point B, Jesus' present kingdom is not of this world, but of course his future kingdom will be. Jesus' present kingdom is not of this world. But of course, His future kingdom will be. This is where we start to describe these things. Are you a king? Are you a king? Now, we talk about Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. But has He been coronated yet? Has He yet been crowned? Has he yet been seated? Has he yet received the scepter? None of that has happened yet. And he's not gonna let that happen until the Father makes that happen, you understand. Satan tried to. The Jews tried to. They tried to make him king when he could feed the five thousand. They go, Ooh, you're a great king. Let's you know, we want a king that can feed us. They try to make him king. He's not yet king. He's worthy of it. He's eligible. He's uniquely qualified to be the eternal son of David on the eternal throne of David. But his coronation has not yet taken place. He's not yet the king. He must first be demonstrated worthy before men and angels alike. And and to do that, he has to go to the cross. And so he's not yet king in an earthly application. You know, think about the, there's this this precedent for this. Think about the land that was promised to Abraham from the river to the river, that that promised land. God promised it to him. So why did he pay cash for the cave where he buried Sarah? Why did he pay cash for the the burial plot uh, at, at, what was it called, Mashpala, the, the, the cave there that he purchased? It was his. It was his as promised, but not yet as given, not yet as reality, not yet as fulfilled. All right? All these died in faith, not seeing fulfilled on the earth what had yet been promised. Okay? Likewise, Jesus promised the throne of David, but not yet granted. And so at present, he is king, but what is his present kingship? What is his present domain? He's not yet on the throne of David. This kingdom of heaven that's right this the um, the Son of God the Father <coughs> and uh you know if this he could call ten thousand angels you know immediately summon these legions of angels he's not doing it all right, so this is um Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. His present kingdom is not of this world, but of course, his future kingdom will be. Now, we' already read in John 18:36, "My kingdom is not of this world, My kingdom is not from here." Okay? This is presently, this is now. it will be, of course, in the future. Psalm two, Psalm 22. Let's look at these. Psalm two and Psalm 22. Why are the nations in an uproar? Now, understand something here. Psalm 2 is millennial. Psalm 2 is millennial. It is uh, not yet fulfilled. It was not fulfilled in Christ's first advent. It was not yet fulfilled on Pentecost. You say, well, Peter quoted this in his Pentecost sermon. Yeah, he also quoted Joel 2 in his Pentecost sermon either, and that's also millennial. All right, so don't get confused. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us now yes the nations raged in his first advent but they're going to rage even more after his second advent they're going to rage even more while he's reigning on david's throne they're going to chafe at that for a thousand years not a first But more and more as the millennium proceeds to the point then where at the end the rebellion is almost global. The rebellion will be as the sand of the seashore with a Gentile hatred for the throne of Jesus Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's millennial. They're not yet under the cords and the fetters. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Remember, the fire comes down to destroy Gog Magog. The fire comes from heaven, not the throne of Jesus Christ. He will speak to them in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is spoken of as a completed action in the Hebrew tense. He is an installed king. Jesus was not an installed king in 1st Advent. Was not an installed king in the church age. He's an installed king on Zion, his holy mountain for Israel, second in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Look at this. Not only is he going to... Bring judgment upon the rebellious Gentile nations, but then he's going to expand the Lord's boundaries during the millennial kingdom. The Lord has boundaries the the Euphrates and the Nile, the the boundaries there from the great river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt uh, the kingdom of Israel has boundaries. The land grant promised to Abraham was finite, not global. It was a finite boundary. And that's what Jesus will rule over in the millennial kingdom. And beyond those boundaries are going to be Gentile kings. Gentile kings that are going to be required a thousand times to come once per year and, and worship Jesus Christ at the Feast of Tabernacles. And when they don't worship Jesus Christ at the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a consequence. They get their rain shut off for the following year. Okay, It's all in Zechariah 14, by the way. You can read this on your own. But what would be the scheme then... When we see that they take counsel together, what's their scheme? They're devising a vain thing. What's their scheme? I believe there are Gentile kings that continue their feigned obedience. They go to Jerusalem. They keep their water turned on. But it's an an external show. It's a feigned obedience, we're told in the book of Psalms. And they're able to Provide water for those rebellious nations under the table. They're able to have these secret arrangements. We'll take care of you, don't worry about it. We'll 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 keep our water going. You know, we'll be the Judas nation that feigns that we love you and we'll stick close to the Lord. But they too at Gog Magog will turn and rebel, same as the other rebellious Gentile nations. But what happens here? Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. The boundaries get expanded. He now will rule not just as the Son of David on the throne of David, but the Son of Man over all humanity. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there are no more boundaries that limit the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's one of the differences between the millennium and the fullness of time. In the millennium, he has a finite boundary for the nation of Israel that he rules as the son of David on the throne of David with tribute kings that have to come to him, subject to him. In the new earth, there won't be those Gentile kings. Jesus alone will have the ends of the earth. He'll have the totality of all human reign. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The millennial kingdom will not be pleasant. It will not be an easy kingdom to rule it's not uh you know flowery sunshine and um you know it's not unicorn and skittles right rainbows it's 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 difficult um rebellion it's it's these are a hard-nosed people now therefore o kings show discernment take warning o judges of the earth and this is a warning for um Uh, millennial kings to make application. Worship the Lord with reverence, not with a feigned obedience. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It's a millennial psalm. All right. My phone just beat. My ringer's on. It is 11 o'clock. I better stop before my phone rings. We'll pick this up next week. Um, We need to understand the eternal promises that were made to Abraham, the eternal promises made to David, the promises that God would have to go back on and lie and betray if, in fact, Israel does not have a future, if, in fact, Jesus' kingdom is only a spiritual kingdom and he is never going to have a future earthly kingdom. um, That is a bad approach to doctrine, and we will uh, destroy that one week from today. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you for the faithfulness of our Savior. Let us learn from his example. And, Father, when we're called upon to make a good confession in the presence of one who has capabilities of uh, ending our physical life, Father, let us rather fear the one who has uh, power over not just our physical life, but our soul. Let us fear you more than man, Father, and let us stand forth in victory. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.